we are shifting from our normally scheduled series this morning. Uh, certainly vital information. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for all of our needs in life, <clears throat> our most essential needs. But this morning, I felt like it was appropriate to shift to a text that I think uh, more directly addresses the context that we find ourselves in right now. So this morning, we're going to be looking at James 3, verses 13 through 18. Uh, I'm fairly certain this is a passage that we've looked at as a congregation in the past, uh, but it is certainly worth revisiting this morning. We are facing a time when we are forced to make decisions, and it's difficult to make those decisions, and we really can't avoid making them, and the costs of making the wrong decision right now are high. The cost of inactivity at the wrong time is high. The cost of overreaction in the wrong way is also high, and we have the capacity to go off the rails in either direction. And we face a flood of information that can be difficult to interpret. Some of it we understand to be true, some of it we question, we're not sure, and the costs of making the wrong decision in either direction can be high. It can be a very difficult thing to try to figure out, even for your own family, even as you try to figure out how are we going to manage uh, doing life in a way that's different from our normal life rhythms, with perhaps kids at home trying to figure out how to uh, stay on track with school, how to make sure that people are healthy in their patterns, and how to make sure that we get along well as a family, while to some degree we are confined in the same place more often than we're used to doing. How do you do that well? Where there are opportunities for a lot of decisions, where decisions are forced one way or another, there are also a lot of opportunities for critiquing those decisions. And hindsight makes it a lot easier to do that. We don't necessarily have the benefit of hindsight right now. And so we put ourselves in a place of risk as we make those decisions, when those things can be questioned after the fact. Even as we work to limit the community spread of a virus, we have the opportunity to spread something that's really good, something that doesn't come from us, but that scripture teaches actually can come through us. Even as we face the challenge of knowing that we have decisions to make in the midst of hardships, and we, we don't know how best to make those decisions. Solomon, uh, centuries ago, faced that very challenge. He was on the verge of taking over the kingship of Israel. This is de described in uh, First Kings in the early chapters. And he was going into this role in which things had been set up pretty well. There was a great opportunity for the people of God to live in peace. And he was becoming king. And God came to him and said to him, What do you want me to give you? And Solomon's response is a, a beautiful model for us. He essentially said, I'm, I'm a kid. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to make all the right decisions for this great people of yours. He says, I don't even know how to go out or come in. Just this picture of inexperience on his part. A very humble response and a humble request as, as a result. And 
Most of you know what the request was. It was, Lord, give me wisdom. I need wisdom to handle this well. And God was pleased with his request and said, yes, absolutely, I'm going to give you wisdom. And very shortly after that request and that answer, Solomon was given the opportunity to exercise that wisdom. A time when he had to make a decision, and the results of any decision could be incredibly costly, and he couldn't avoid making a decision. First Kings 3, he is faced with two ladies who come to him. These are two ladies who live in the same house together. Uh, both of them have given birth recently. And very sadly, during the night, one of these ladies' infants has died. Evidently, she, she rolled over on this infant. It was suffocated, and it died. And both of the ladies in this house claimed that the living child was her own child. And this sort of went up through the ranks in Israel, and people couldn't figure out how to respond to this. Uh, there are no video cameras. There's no evidence. It's one person's word against another's. So what do you do, especially as a king who is early in his rule and has an opportunity uh, either to demonstrate that you don't know how to handle these things and things are going to go haywire very quickly, or that the people of God have a prospect of living in peace with one another? Solomon uh, shows what the wisdom that only comes from God does in a situation like this. The wisdom that God has given Solomon leads him to do something that is very effective. So what he says is, bring me a sword. And when they bring him a sword, he says, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Now, that may sound very much like the way a man would solve a problem. But this is not the wisdom that comes from men, much less the wisdom that comes from a man. This really is the wisdom of God, and it demonstrates that Solomon understands two things about what happen inside of somebody's motives, inside of somebody's heart. He doesn't know people's hearts perfectly, but God has given him the wisdom that allows him to understand people and how they work well enough to make an effective decision. One of the things that he understands is the heart of a mother. He knows that one of those ladies would rather let that baby live and not keep it as her own than to see it die. He also seems to understand something of a heart of competition, a heart that's so infected by selfishness that it's willing to see a child die rather than lose what somebody wants for their own, uh, the, the honor, especially in that culture of having a child, and it works. It works. One woman says, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. And the other woman, who is clearly infected by a spirit of competition, says, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And it becomes clear very quickly who the child actually belongs to. Solomon didn't just win when this happens. Solomon made peace, and he put the people of Israel in a place where they began to understand this is a safe place to do what's right. This is a safe place for justice. 
This is described in 1 Kings uh, 3.28. And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So there's this spreading of peace and righteousness and justice in the land. Wouldn't it be really cool to be able to do that in our circles of influence? And they may be small. They're probably not a whole nation, maybe a neighborhood, maybe a family. But wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to spread the sense of confidence that this is a place where justice and peace and righteousness rule? That's especially hard to do at a time when things are difficult. But wouldn't it be cool to be able to do that? Uh, if you could ask God to give you anything during this time of trouble, during this time when there are so many high leverage decisions to be made and such a high potential cost to the wrong decisions and lack of access to perfect information, what would you ask him for? Wouldn't it be great if you could have what Solomon had? James chapter 1 gives us a promise. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the promise is for us. God says if you lack wisdom, especially in the context of trials, you have trouble knowing where to put your foot next, ask me. I am glad to give you wisdom. That wisdom is perhaps somewhat different than we would expect it to be. It is not the same thing as information. It does help us to handle information, but it's not the same thing as information. What we will find is that the nature of that wisdom is really about formation. This is a wisdom that do doesn't only tell you things. It's a wisdom that changes you, that allows you to process information and people and the way that people interact with one another in such a way as to spread what James is going to describe as a harvest of righteousness by making peace. That's what this wisdom allows us to do. Now, sometimes we don't ask for this wisdom because we think we don't need it, because we think we know everything that we really need to know, at least more than other people around us. So we want to listen carefully to the question that James asks about wisdom when we get over to chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? Uh, if we were to ask you to tweet out an answer to that question, how many of you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm wise in understanding? Uh, I'm, I'm the person that people ought to listen to. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll sign up. I'll put myself on that list. I doubt many of us would want to go public claiming that label for ourselves. And at the same time, our functional answer to that question changes when we're facing a crisis or when we're facing a conflict. So if we change the question just a little bit and ask, who among you is right? Who among you really should be listened to? Who among you is level-headed? Who among you responds based on facts and not fear? If we were especially to ask that question in the midst of a conversation about what's happening today, how many of us would say, yeah, I, I'm basically trustworthy. 
I should be listened to, probably more of us would respond positively to that question. Both of the women that Solomon was dealing with wanted to be listened to. They wanted to be, they wanted their word to be treated as trustworthy. What's the difference between being truly wise and merely thinking that you're right? It really is more than a question of data. Edwards Deming was a uh, an engineer in uh, 20th century U.S. and actually did a lot of work in post-World War II Japan. And one of the things that he's famous for saying is that without data, you're just another person with an opinion. And in, in a lot of cases, that really is true. That's worth considering. That's not what James is talking about. He's not talking about the kind of thing that ultimately, on its own, requires data because it's possible that even if you have data, uh, without wisdom, you are just another fool with data. And we don't want to go there. It's possible to have all kinds of data and still be foolish in the, kind of, in the kinds of way that James is actually describing here. He's talking about a different kind of wisdom, and therefore a kind of wisdom that demonstrates itself in a different way. This is not a wisdom that demonstrates itself by proving its point with words. Here's what James says. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Those who are wise do good for others in the meekness of wisdom. That meekness is not a matter of passivity. It's not a matter of inaction. It's not a matter of not having any kind of opinion. But it's a meekness that demonstrates itself in a different way. It means that you trust that the wisdom that you have did not come from yourself, that your best ideas are not your own, that it is, in fact, God's wisdom at work, and that God's wisdom is able to accomplish things that your own wisdom uh, cannot. So therefore, it is worthwhile to do good to others, to be kind to others, to spread peace with others in the name of wisdom, trusting that God is able to do what our own best ideas cannot do. It makes space for the meekness of wisdom, not passivity, but real gentleness, whether that's in conversation or in action with others. Now, that might sound really hard to come by. Where do we find that kind of wisdom? So we want to keep coming back to the promise in chapter 1, verse 5, that if any of you lacks this kind of wisdom, and it's not to be found through a Google search, it's not even to be found on its own by talking to experts, it's found first and foremost by acknowledging your need of it to God and asking Him to give it to you. God loves to give us the kind of wisdom that forms us into people whose wisdom is demonstrated by doing good for others. So there is true wisdom. And there is something that feels like true wisdom, and it really is the opposite. And James begins to describe that in verse 14. The opposite of true wisdom, you'll notice in this passage, if you're looking at it, is not ignorance. It's selfishness. James calls it bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. It's really more a matter of motives than it is a matter of knowledge. And this is something that we face in our day. As people disagree with other people's opinions, one of the primary charges that they bring against other people is a charge of motives. This charge that this is uh, spun politically, or that uh, one party wants one view of this crisis and another party wants another view of this crisis, because if people share their view, it's going to bring them greater power. And that is a genuine risk. Uh, there, there is political spin, and each one of us faces this temptation. And what we're asking for when we're asking for wisdom is a wisdom that is not infected by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Politicians and members of the media are certainly not the only individuals who are at risk of this kind of pollution of wisdom, this kind of false wisdom that's characterized by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. When we have this kind of false wisdom, it doesn't feel like false wisdom. It feels right. It just feels like I'm right, like I should be listened to. But James says that if I insist on people listening to my selfishly polluted opinions, then I am boasting and being false to the truth. When I use data to support my selfishness, it feels right, but it's not right. James describes this by saying in verse 15, this selfishly polluted arguments, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly. Now what's wrong with that? What's wrong with earthly? That sort of just sounds like practical. And is James saying, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't focus on anything that's practical. We shouldn't focus on anything that we should see. We should only be spiritual. That's not what he's saying at all. He isn't talking about knowledge. He isn't telling us that we shouldn't pay attention to the things going on around us. He's talking about wisdom, and the specific kind of wisdom he's talking about is the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom that we cannot only get by paying attention to information. He's, when he says it is earthly, he says, this is the kind of wisdom that human beings can come up with on their own, which isn't enough and which is always infected in the end to some degree or another by false motives and that will lead us astray. This selfish wisdom is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly. And to make it clear, he upgrades it for us. He says it is earthly. He says it is unspiritual. It's the kind of false wisdom that says, I want to be heard more than I want other people to be helped. I want to be heard more than I want other people to be helped. And so James becomes even more clear. He says this isn't the wisdom that comes from above. This is the wisdom that is earthly, that is unspiritual. And he says this is the wisdom that is demonic. When my decision-making process is polluted by selfish desires, by the things that I want for myself that so often I don't even notice in myself, when my decision-making process is polluted 
like that, James says, I am cooperating with demons. I don't see that. It doesn't feel like that. It just feels right. But our enemy is smart. He knows how to exercise influence without us even noticing that he's there. So there's a lot at stake here. And I hope that this reminds us once again to come back to the God who has so graciously offered to give us the wisdom that replaces earthly, unspiritual, even demonic wisdom with a kind of wisdom that produces something beautiful, something that cannot come only from this world that James is going to describe in just a few minutes. Even when you don't see demonic wisdom coming, you can't see it for what it is, it doesn't have horns and a tail in your eyes, you can recognize it by its fruit. And so James describes the fruit of earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. False wisdom makes a mess. There will be chaos. You'll see people saying ridiculous things to get their way. Trust will be broken. Fingers will be pointed at people with the accusation of false motives, accusations that, that really can only be guessed at. We cannot see one another's hearts, but there are a lot of accusations that claim to be able to. And it turns into a mess, disorder, and every vile practice. And all the while, God stands willing and able and ready to give us something infinitely better, infinitely better than that selfishness, infinitely better than any kind of wisdom we can produce for ourselves. It is there for the asking. And it's not mainly information, it's mainly formation. It mainly changes us. And he describes that true wisdom in verses 17 and 18. He describes first what it's like. And in contrast to wisdom that's polluted by selfish desires, he says, first, the wisdom from above is first pure. It's not polluted in those same ways. It genuinely wants good things for others, even to the extent that it's willing to sacrifice itself uh, for others. When God gives you the wisdom that comes from above, it doesn't only fill your mind, it fills and changes your heart. And because it's pure, it is also peaceable. If I am intent on getting my own way and operating out of fear that I may not be able to, operating out of fear that if I don't get my own way, really bad things might happen to me and perhaps to those close to me, then I don't have the space that I need to think about how to do good for others. I certainly don't have the space to know how to bring peace between two other people who are in conflict with each other because of their own fears. But the wisdom that God offers to us, because it is pure, is also peaceable. It provides the space and has the ability to bring each of us between two other people and help to bring them to a place of reconciliation, of peace, a place where we can help to represent one person's concerns to another and vice versa, and help to bring them together rather than seeing them torn apart. How in the world do you do that? When you see two people who are arguing, it's so much more tempting just to join one of the two camps or to leave the room. 
but the wisdom from God, because it is first pure, is also peaceable, knows how to mediate, how to bring people together. There's a call for a president, for instance, that will unite our country, and that's something that people claim to be able to do, and it's helpful when people can do that in small ways. But so often the form of uniting that actually ends up happening is just by beating the other side. This is a peaceableness that is better than anything we could possibly vote for, even as we seek to vote wisely. Look at the rest of James's description in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. And now stop there, and as I read the rest of the description, imagine yourself, picture yourself when you're in the middle of a conflict or trying to mediate a conflict, and ask, what do I look like? What am I characterized by? What comes out of me? Does it look like this? Can I say that in the midst of those times, I am gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere? I would love to be. Wouldn't you love to be gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere? Especially in those high heat kinds of situations. You can see even by looking at that description just how powerful that person's presence could be in a difficult crisis situation. It's a very different kind of power, but it is powerful and it is beautiful and it is part of the wisdom that comes from above, which is the one kind of wisdom that God actually offers to give us in James 1.5. He really only offers us the wisdom that comes from above and this is what it produces in us. So once again, we start, when we find the need for it, by asking. So even as you find yourself perhaps in these situations where there is a hard conversation that's happening, or a decision that needs to be made between two or more people, if the context allows you to do it uh, in a way that is fitting, why don't you just say, you know what, let's, let's ask the Lord for help. Let's come to Him first. Let's ask Him for wisdom together, this kind of wisdom that allows us together to be peaceful, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What does it do? What does that wisdom result in? It results in something that spreads. We're trying to stem the spread of something bad right now as best we can. And we have the opportunity at God's offer to spread something really good. Here's the result, verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see that sort of in seed form in Solomon when he responds wisely in a crisis conflict situation and the people say, this is going to go well for us. This is a good land in which justice is going to prevail. Solomon does that in a provisional way. And we see our Lord Jesus do it uh, in a perfect way, in a way that's more perfect than Solomon could do. We see him do this in Mark 10. I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible with you or a device, turn there and watch Jesus in a way that's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, but not passive. 
plant a harvest of righteousness and to make peace. Mark 10, James and John uh, come to Jesus. Uh, this is in verse 35. James and John come to Jesus driven by desire. And they don't even try to hide it. Look what they say. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Your desire at work. And Jesus wisely draws them out. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Here's what they say. And perhaps you can see right through this. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. They talk about his glory, but whose glory are they really interested in? That much is very clear. They're interested in their own. And the other disciples have no trouble seeing that. They have no trouble seeing that there are bad motives at work on the part of others. And so we're told when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And now there's a fight. Here's Jesus in the middle of it all. And I don't like it when I'm put in that kind of situation. And it's easy to respond with the wisdom that comes from below. Uh, with uh, inaction and just leaving the room, saying you guys are going to have to deal with this on your own. Or with force, saying uh, you guys need to knock this off. You need to stop fighting. This is not kind. And, and in the end, I've just uh, kicked the can down the road and made the problem even worse. Keep in mind that for Jesus, there is something personal at work here as well. He has just told them for the third time what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He has just told them, just before this request and this fight, he's just told them that he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. So that's where he's headed, and his disciples are completely ignoring that and fighting over petty, selfish desires instead. And you can imagine how easy it would be to tell them, look, I've just told you that I am going to suffer unimaginable things, and look at yourselves. And that's not what Jesus does. Jesus demonstrates in a beautiful way, models for us, the wisdom that comes from above. Instead of fighting for himself, he calls them to himself, and he gently plants a harvest of righteousness. He reminds them that the powerful people in the world who don't know God use their power to get what they want, to win, to be treated as right. God has a better way for his own, and Jesus gently, kindly, quietly, and in a sense even slowly shows them what that better way is. Here's what he says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And you can imagine in the context, sometimes it's hard to read tone, but the context makes clear that Jesus is not saying this in a tone that says, you need to knock this off. You need to be a slave of all. This is, this is a tone that reflects the wisdom that comes from above. This is a tone that knows what's best for those who are in the room with him and 
and demonstrates the wisdom of his words by the way that he says it as well. This is not passive. Uh, this is not weak. But this is also not entering in to the fighting kind of false wisdom that his disciples have so readily entered into. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Who wants to be listened to? Guys, who wants influence? Show your works, Jesus says in his own words, in the meekness of wisdom. So Jesus gently, peaceably, impartially redirects his disciples' conflicts with each other. And in their conflicts with each other, the main thing that's at the root of all those challenges, the main thing that's at the root of all those conflicts, and James will, will go in this direction in chapter 4, the main thing that's at the root of those conflicts is ultimately each person's conflict with God, each person's insistence that, no, I really, really want to be my own God. Even if that's with a very small g, I want to be my own God. And Jesus makes clear, even as he seeks to bring peace between his disciples in the moment, that he has come to solve the root problem as well. Verse 45 of Mark 10, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as we seek to live out the wisdom that comes from above, that changes us in such a way that we are prepared to be a servant rather than insisting on being served, to listen uh, before we insist on being heard, for thinking about how other people can be helped before we insist on people adopting our own opinions. As we seek this wisdom that is peaceable and gentle and open to reason, and therefore, to a certain degree, costly, it's vital for us to remember what it is that Jesus has done for us to bring us into a place where we could receive that wisdom in the first place. We needed to be reconciled to the God who gives it to us. We needed to be safe with him. We needed to be ransomed from our own sin. And he has, in fact, done that. Because Jesus has done that for us, we now have the privilege of doing it for each other, laying down our broken, destructive desires and planting a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. So as we go, let's be in prayer to the God who has promised to answer the prayer, to give us for today's needs and tomorrow's needs, for those around us, the wisdom that comes from above. Would you pray with me now? Father, we, we might be impressed by this description of wisdom. It's a beautiful description, and the offer of a harvest of righteousness that's sown in peace is something that uh, none of us would reject if it were really set before us and yet it can feel so impossible, and on our own, it is. So we come to you and ask that you would make good on your promise to give us this kind of wisdom. Prepare us to be able to process information and to make decisions 
and to interact with people in such a way as to spread a sense that in Jesus there is peace, that in Jesus there is justice, that all is well for those who belong to him. And as a result, may we be, by the power of your Spirit, a powerful witness for the gospel during these difficult times. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.